Well, before we begin, uh, I'm going to put a sign-up sheet up here if you decide you want these uh, PowerPoints or even the Word docs as well in electronic form. Just uh, come put your email up on this piece of paper after we uh, dismiss this afternoon. And try not to take the pen if you can help it. It's not mine, so I won't miss it, but... Okay, so we're going to jump back in, and as I said uh, before the break, we're going to talk about some things relating to Second Timothy chapter 2 more, in more detail this afternoon. Uh, and I want to start out with a thought, and that thought is this. Uh, some of you probably are too young to even know what Route 66 is, but Route 66 is a, is a highway that ran all the way from Los Angeles to Chicago, at one time, it was the most popular highway. It was the, the most popular route to go across the country. Uh, and then they built interstates. And interstates are much faster. They're much straighter. The speed limit's much greater. Um, and so sometimes the old ways, the old paths, seem like they're a little bit outdated. And they're, they may not be the easy way. It may not be the fastest way to do things. And we get infatuated with coming up with new things and new ways. And so... So I want to spend a little bit of time talking about it as, as teachers. We need to seek out the old paths. And there's, there's, a, there's a lot of infatuation with coming up with new concepts, new, new teachings, and new ideas. And, and the truth is, what that really does is get us into more trouble than it is helpful. In Acts 17 and verse 18, it says, Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, What does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak? For you are bringing some strange thing to our ears, therefore we want to know what these things mean. Now, this is Luke's narrative in verse 21 about what's happening. He says, For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. This is a common thing. Um, Obviously, we talked about these philosophers and what they were interested in and how they were really interested in displaying their intellect and their superior orating skills and that type of thing. But they were also very infatuated with new knowledge. And and this idea of new knowledge is, is not a problem that was just existing in that time. They were not interested in hearing about Jesus and his resurrection because... Uh, of the salvation and the grace and all those things that would go along with it. They just said, oh, it's something new. And I think we can get very infatuated with something new and think that maybe a new way of saying things is better, a new concept is better. But the truth is, we need to teach God's Word in its simplicity because these things that we read in God's Word, they're not archaic. And And I think a lot of people believe that they're archaic because they're old. And they are old. They're very old. You think about how long we've existed as a country. The Bible's eight times older than that. I mean, they're old, right? But they're timeless. Because these are things that come from the mind of God relating to relationships and and things regarding morality and ethics and behavior. These are not archaic concepts. And so we don't need to be infatuated with new things or with philosophical things. Uh, the literal definition of the word philosophy is the love of human wisdom. It comes from two words, philo and sophos. Philosophy, philo, love, brotherly love, Philadelphia, same root word. Philo, love, wisdom, human wisdom, sophos. And that's, that's the thing. These people were infatuated with the idea of human wisdom. And we're warned about this in Colossians 2 and 8. Uh, this is from the New American Standard. I thought it was just a little bit clearer. He says, see to it that there is no one who takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception in accordance with human tradition, in accordance with the elementary principles of the world, rather than in accordance with Christ. Wisdom in and of itself has an attractive uh, element to it. It's, it's shiny. It's, it looks valuable because it's something that people covet, is to, to have some level of knowledge that's higher and, and, and greater than other people. But if we're not careful, as he says here, human reasoning and wisdom 
can take us prisoner and lead us away from Christ. And that's really the heart of this. You know, I think it's translated, let no man spoil you. But that literally means to take as in taking away booty. Like they, they talk, that's the literal definition of it is, is to go and take treasure and steal it away. Well, what's he talking about here? You being stolen away, someone taking you prisoner by philosophy. Now, have you ever seen that happen? You ever seen Christians taken captive by some philosophy? That's one of the problems with these pet doctrines is sometimes those things can become a philosophy that people get, they get so wrapped up in it in their mind, again, it becomes their identity, and all of a sudden, they're not working for Christ, they're, all, they're caught up in this philosophy. And we've got to be careful of that, being infatuated with new ideas or human wisdom. Uh, there's all kinds of human wisdom out there that sounds good. And I would say... It's not necessarily wrong in and of itself, inherently wrong to read those things, but never take those things uh, for granted. Read those things, take them with a grain of salt, compare them to Scripture. Never read some human's ideas without first comparing them to Scripture. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put light for, or darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those, listen, who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. This is another problem that often happens is when we're in search for wisdom and we devote our mind and our attention to human wisdom, I'll tell you what the outcome is going to be. We're going to believe we're really wise. Do you think these people thought they were wise? Yeah, he said they, look, they esteemed themselves as being wise people. And what did he say? Woe to you. He said, you're all mixed up. You're, you're making good evil and, and light dark. Now, does that happen today? Absolutely. In fact, morality, everything's upside down. It's virtuous and right to be caught up in sexual immorality in America today. And for the whole world for that matter. And what happens if you take a stand for God's holiness and you say, no, that is only for marriage. Someone says, well, you're wrong. They're darkness. They're evil. Why? Because they've been taken captive by human wisdom that has convinced them that God's ways are archaic and old. And we need to seek a new path, a path of, uh, an enlightened path. We're not immune from this. And the moment we start esteeming ourselves as wise is going to be the moment that our progress halts and stops. I want you to notice 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18. And remember, he's writing to Corinth. He's talking to a, a culture of people who sought after human wisdom. And he says this, let no one deceive himself if anyone among you seems to be wise. Do you notice that word seems to be wise? He didn't say if anybody is wise. He said seems to be wise. And I want to recall your attention back to Isaiah 5. This is about being wise in your own eyes, about being prudent in your own sight. And he says, so if someone seems to be wise, let him become a fool that he may become wise. This almost sounds counterintuitive. Be a fool so you can be wise. There's an irony to that. Uh, but this is the irony. The way to wisdom is through our willingness to be known as a fool. Because here's, here's the truth. If, if you try to take a stand for the things that are biblically true, and I'll just, I've used this before, so I'm going to use it again. If you take a position today in the world that the world was created in six literal days, you're going to be scrutinized. You're going to be called an idiot. They're going to say you're uneducated. You obviously are dumb. That's, that's how the world looks at it. And what's unfortunate is even people who say they believe in God and Jesus Christ take that same stance well, you're dumb. I, I'm okay with being a fool in the world's eyes, are you? Because that's the path to wisdom. And the other path to wisdom is this, to admit I don't have all the wisdom in the world. I'm not wise. And the problem is, if we think we're wise, we're not going to become wise. You know why? Because the tank is full. You know who the hardest person to teach in any room is? The smartest guy in the room. That doesn't sound right, does it? That the person who's the most intelligent is usually the hardest person to teach. You know why? Because knowledge puffs up. And the more intelligence and wisdom that we gain, the more likely we are to be full of ourselves. And the more full we are of ourselves, the less we see the need for real wisdom. Jeremiah chapter 6 and verse 15, were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed, nor did they know how to blush. 
Therefore they shall fall among those who fall. At the time I punish them, they shall be cast down, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord. Now listen. Stand in the ways and see and ask for the old paths. What were the old paths here? It was the law of Moses. He said, you need to seek what was already given to you. Seek the old knowledge because all this, obviously they were not seeking the old path. They were seeking a different path that led them to the point where the things that God said were shameful and abominable were no longer even something they felt shame about being involved in. They lost their ability in their conscience to discern good and evil. Remember what we started this out with several, three weeks ago, two weeks ago? What's the point of growth? So we have a greater level of discernment to discern things that are good and evil. So this is counterproductive. If you're seeking out new ways, it's going to affect the way that you discern what's right and what's wrong in the eyes of God. So seek the old paths. Remember, preach the word. Preach the word. People don't need a bunch of modern ideas to be able to understand God's Word. They just need the Word. And, and we need to be able to, to ponder those things, meditate on those things in a way that we can simplify these concepts, but we don't need to try to modernize them in such a way that it makes things more culturally relevant or contemporary. Preach the Word. Be ready. Be ready. In season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires. Because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers and will turn away their ears from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Sometimes the fable is more attractive than the truth. Because the fable doesn't hurt my feelings. The fable doesn't challenge me to change. And people hate change. But the truth is, the truth's what we need. The truth has intrinsic value. You know, as Solomon said, buy the truth and do not sell it. And also wisdom and understanding and instruction. Buy those things. They're valuable. <clears throat> this has very little value in our life. Not this scripture, but the idea of this infatuation and attraction to human wisdom and this new knowledge. So one of the problems with new knowledge is, is it greatly affects the lens that we approach Scripture with. And I want to go to 2 Peter chapter 3 for a moment and, and identify some things as Peter. And this is a very familiar passage to us. Uh, Peter says, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. So Paul had a wisdom, notice, that was given to him. And that's been a common theme as we've looked at this. Why is this God's wisdom? Because it's God-given. It's God-given. And I, I, I fear sometimes we feel like that we get some unction from God that He's endued us with some special wisdom He didn't give other people. I would question that, be skeptical of that every time. The wisdom God's given us and equipped us with comes from His Word. Paul, we know, was a person who was inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so the wisdom that was given to him, notice he says in verse 16, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of those matters or of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. Amen? There's some things that are hard to understand. Concepts that take a little digging, a little effort, a little time. But, but what I really want us to focus on is when something's hard to understand, there's always people who will take those concepts and use that to their advantage. Because, you know, it's easier to deceive someone with a hard saying than it is an easy saying. If I had a crayon that was red and I said, this crayon is blue, everybody would go, no, it's not blue. Well, if I was up here away from you and I said, this crayon is magenta and it was red, some of you go, is it? Well, some of you don't know. You're not close enough. So it's a lot easier to deceive people when, when, when there's a little bit more of a, of a narrow scope. And so some of these things that Paul says, it might be harder to understand. He said, of people which are ignorant and unstable, he says, they twist them to their own destruction as they do other scriptures. Now, we might look at that and say, well, if ignorant uh, and unstable people want to do that, that's their problem. It's not their problem. It's everybody's problem. You, therefore, beloved, know, knowing this beforehand, take care. Now listen, that you are not carried away with the error of lawless 
people and lose your own stability. He said, you got to watch out for those unstable people that twist the scriptures because those unstable people breed unstable people. And their unstable doctrines will create unstability in you. What's he mean, unstable? He means fall from your own steadfastness. I believe that's the way that's translated in the King James. You fall from your own steadfastness. Be very careful when you're around people <clears throat> that you know have a, a desire for human wisdom. Because it's, it's very likely that because of that, they may uh, twist the scriptures. And, and I'm not saying that's 100% of the time, but just be very cautious that we don't get caught up in that. That's not helpful for God's people. And, and I also want to say that none of us are incapable of twisting the Scripture. I'm not saying everyone does. I'm saying none of us are incapable of doing that. So be careful yourself in not doing that. I've done it, and done it unintentionally. You know, it wasn't with this, this type of mindset. I was ignorant, I will say that. I was telling some of the guys, I think it was last week, that I'd preached a sermon because I had, had found this connection with 1 John 5 where I thought it was connected to baptism, you know, the, the spirit and the water and the blood. And I thought, man, this, this is a powerful lesson here on baptism. So I created a whole lesson on this. And then I went back to study that later and I realized that John was trying to battle against Gnosticism his gospel was devoted to proving Jesus actually came in the flesh. And those three things he mentioned there were evidences that he witnessed there at the cross confirming that Jesus actually is flesh. And so I, I had to call an elder and say, did you record that sermon I gave him First John 5? He said, yeah, I said, burn it. <laughs> Get rid of it. I was totally off base about that. I, I wasn't intentionally trying to deceive anyone. I just was caught up in something, you know, trying to build 20,000 lessons on baptism when I was young and found another way to do it. Well, I, had, I twisted the scripture to do it. So we, we all have to be careful about that. And, and I want to say that the reason why we've been talking about a lot of these things today instead of talking about presentation skills or something like that is, is because the right intention breeds the right attitude. And the right attitude, that helps learning. It, it really creates an environment for learning. If we have the right attitude, the right spirit, if you will, as we deliver truths and instruct people. And I want us to be really centered as, uh, this afternoon on the goal. What is the goal? And we talked about edification. That's not, not necessarily what we're going to focus on. But what is the goal of teaching? So we will go back on this a little bit, uh, back to some of this material from the beginning. But we're going to conceptualize it maybe a different way. So Ephesians 4.15, we brought this up earlier in a, in a longer reading. Speaking the truth in love. May grow up in all things into him who is the head, even Christ. What is the goal? What is the goal? When we talk about effective teaching, what's the standard? And I think this is the standard in everything that we do. It has to be done from love. Notice 1 Timothy uh, verse 1 verse 5. He says, the aim, that is the goal of our charge, that is what we've been charged with or commanded to do, is love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Who's Paul talking about here? He's talking about him, he's talking about Timothy, and the charge that they've been given to evangelize and teach the gospel of Christ. And he said, the goal is love. So, 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 and 2. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I am become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. Love, again, is the overarching theme of this. And I'm going through these quick because we're going to come back to 1 Corinthians 13 and, and dive into it just a little, in, in just a little bit. Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. This is one of my favorite verses in the New Testament. I think it's just a wonderful reminder. This is a great reminder for us as teachers. So I, want, I, I would like for you that are teachers to memorize these verses, to keep them in the forefront of your mind, because they're such a powerful uh, way of, of, of conceptualizing where love really plays into, into the, the work of love, teaching in love here in these verses. He says, This I pray that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and in all discernment. So let's just break that part of it down first. 
What does it mean, love abound? Okay, what is abound? Abound means superfluous. It means, it means to come out of the top of the cup and flow out of the cup. It's overflowing. That's the idea of abounding. And so what's he say? This I pray that your love may abound or overflow in what? In what? Knowledge and discernment. So a great point of focus that we've had throughout this teacher training has been what? Knowledge and discernment. But there's another element to that that he says this should actually be above those things, should be overflowing in those things. And what was it? Love. What's that look like? (laughs) Okay, let's just continue on and notice the effect of having love abounding in knowledge and judgment. He says that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. It's very similar to what Paul just said in 1 Corinthians 13, that you can have the knowledge and the discernment and operate from those things, and you may have some amount of success, but when you take love out of that equation... It doesn't do anything. It's not for the right reason. It's not accomplishing the right purpose. And, and I, I will say from personal experience, if we remove love from our teaching, it's going to drastically change the way that we communicate with people. And I've been there. I, I've gotten frustrated with people at times, and I, and I failed to love them when they really needed it because I was trying to instruct and help them. And, and it caused me to be uh, condescending. It caused me to be rude to that person. And we have to remember that love is the overabounding element that needs to be in every facet of our teaching. So, before we dive into that deeper, I want to ask a question. Is it unloving to rebuke someone? I was looking for a picture that kind of embodied the idea of rebuke, and this is the one that I decided to use, and I'll tell you why. Because... There's not many things that really bother me, but when somebody takes their finger and they do this at me, that, that bothers me. I don't know why, it just does. Does it bother you? That's pretty hard, right? Somebody talks to you and they do, you know, especially if they're taller than you and they do this. It's hard to take. I'm not saying you should do that when you rebuke someone, but rebuke is tough, Right? And now, now we hear people, if you ever say anything about someone's behavior being unholy or wrong or sinful, you know what they'll say? Well, that's not very loving of you, Christian. Someone ask you, is that true? If we expose someone's sin, if we rebuke, is that unloving? Well, it can be. But rebuke in and of itself is not unloving. And I, wanna, I, I don't want to assert that. I want to show you in Scripture the value of rebuke and how rebuke is actually not... In contrast to love, it's connected with love. Notice 1 Corinthians 13, 4. Uh, We're just going to look at verse 6 for now. We'll come back to these other passages later. It says that love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. So when someone says, well, unless you celebrate my sin and approve my sin and tolerate my sin, you're not very loving. Well, that's actually the opposite of true. Because who gets to define what love means? Does the world get to decide that or does God? Because God says love does not rejoice in sin. What does it rejoice in? The truth. It rejoices in the truth. So rebuke and love are not in contrast to one another. Proverbs 27 verse 5 says, Open rebuke is better than love, carefully concealed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. So we've got this very stark contrast painted here between a friend and an enemy. A friend and enemy. Who would you rather be interact with? An enemy that kisses you? Or a friend that's just honest and wounds you? You say, I'm going to be wounded by a friend. Well, the wound he's talking about here is not them taking a stick and beating you or something. He's talking about the wound of the word. The wounds of rebuke. You know, there's there's a common theme we see regarding rebuke in Scripture. Proverbs 9, chapter uh, 9, chapter 8. Chapter 9, verse 8. Do not correct a scoffer lest he hate you. Rebuke a wise man and he will love you. You know why some people don't react in a positive way to rebuke? Because they're a scoffer. (laughs) He actually tells you that. If if you rebuke a wise person, they will love you. Well, you know, if you rebuke somebody and they scoff at you, that kind of gives you an indication of what level of wisdom they have. That's, That's what he's saying here. And that's what a lot of the Proverbs is, is here's the wise, here's the fool. And let's put them side by side and just view them in reality. Do you like being rebuked? I don't. 
I think you're strange if you like being rebuked. But I'll tell you, when you've got the right mindset and attitude about being right with God, and that's your focus, you will love someone who actually cares about you so much that they'll tell you what's wrong in your life to help you. Proverbs 13, 18, poverty and shame will come to him who disdains correction, but he who regards a rebuke will be honored. Rebuke is for our good. Ecclesiastes 7, 5, it's better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools, you know? And what we're seeing here is that rebuke is an unpleasant thing to hear. It's an unpleasant thing to hear. It doesn't bring us joy and happiness. But you know what? Sometimes the song of fools does. And I'll tell you, there's a lot of songs of fools out on the radio. And, you know, we'll move to the music, sing along with them, dance around. It gives you a good feeling. He said, it's better to hear somebody's rebuke than to listen to that. Why? Because it feels better? No. No, it wounds us. That's what it is. It's a wound. It's a wounding. Whoever rebukes a man will afterward find more favor than he who flatters with the tongue. Somebody looks at this and says, well, that's just not true. That's just not true. Well, it depends on what you mean by afterward and find more favor and who we're looking for favor with. I'll tell you, I don't want somebody to blow smoke at me. Tell me I'm great. Tell me I'm perfect. Tell me everything's right in my life. I need that person who loves me enough to look at me and says, Ian, you got a problem. And I love you enough to tell you about it. I think we need to do that for one another. And again, we need to do that in the spirit of love, but just doing that doesn't mean that it's not loving. If we love each other, we will call out each other on sinful things. And, and I'm not saying that, that there needs to be a, a very uh, shotgun approach to that where you're just going around just blasting everybody with every problem you see. That's not my point. My point is when you have a relationship with somebody and you're close to that person and you see there's error in their life, just bringing it up, that's not unloving. But you got to do that for the right reason. For the right reason. What is it exactly that's wounded in rebuke? You know what's usually wounded for me? My pride. That's usually why it hurts. It's, it's not because you actually offended me. And we use that word very loosely. Well, you've offended me, therefore it was not done out of love. The Bible doesn't use the word offended in that way when it condemns being offended. Now, there are times that it uses the word offended to mean uh, someone like when they talked to Jesus and they said, well, hey, don't you know the Pharisees were offended at what you said? Well, they were offended because they didn't like what he said. So there are times when it's used that way. But when it talks about offending a brother, that's not what it means is hurting a brother's feelings. Offending a brother means that you cause him to stumble or trip or walk away from Jesus, to walk away from the faith. And so don't, don't buy into this modern garbage of, well, if you hurt somebody's feelings when you tell them the truth, that was obviously unloving. And we'll have some more things to qualify that. I want you to notice 2 Corinthians 7. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians 7, 8 and 10. Do you think that the first letter that Paul wrote hurt the people at Corinth? I think it did. And I think he points out here that it did. And, and I want you to notice what he says. He says, for even if I made you sorry with my letter, obviously they were, right? They were made sorry. Well, I don't like being made feel sorry because that infers that I'm feeling guilty. He says, I made you sorry with a letter. And he says, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. Someone says, wait, what? That's right. When he wrote it, he, he, he didn't want to have to write that. And so that's the regret he's talking about. He's not regretting it and saying, well, I repent of that. I, I did something wrong and I feel bad about that. He's saying, there was a time when I was writing this that I, I didn't want to do that. But I'm glad I did. I'm glad that I rebuked you. I'm glad I wrote the letter. I'm glad the things that I said were strong and they made you sorry. And he says now in verse 9, I rejoice not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Do you see a contrast here? I, I want to I take verse 10 and, and sort of deconstruct it for a minute. Godly sorrow produces repentance to salvation. What happens when we remove the sorrow, the godly sorrow from people, and we flatter them with the tongue, and we never, never, ever tell them anything that's wrong in their life? You know what that produces? Unrighteousness to damnation. That's what it produces. 
Is that loving? Is it? For me to withhold valuable information from somebody, that, that's not loving. It's just, again, it's philosophy. It's the wisdom of the world. It's this new ideology that's come out there. So, I told somebody I did this earlier, forgot to highlight things, and I, I inevitably did that, so we're not going to pay attention to that and just move on. How do we rebuke? That's a more important question. Because I'll I tell you, when you start talking about rebuke and you start talking about the necessity of rebuke and how it values, I'll tell you, some people get real excited. They get real excited. Oh, man, I'd go rebuke people. That's great. Settle down. <laughs> we rebuke in love. We teach in love. And so 2 Timothy 2 that I said we would dive into. Once again, the servant of the Lord must not quarrel. But be gentle to all, able to teach, patient in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. If God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. You must not quarrel. How do we not quarrel? Gentleness, patience, humility. Those three things. What is, what is love, biblical love? I want to dive into that. What does it mean teaching the truth in love? And, and I want to do this as an exercise. Number one, I want to do this as in an exercise of looking at context and, and seeing why certain things were taught. And so I want to go to 1 Corinthians 13. And as we talk about this, this is often known as the chapter about love, and it is, and it defines love in many ways. But have you ever noticed there's a reason why Paul defines love with such characteristics? And so I, I want us to think about these things all together, that love suffers long, that is, it's patient, it's kind, it does not envy, it does not parade itself, it's not puffed up, it does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. So let's think about what was leading up to chapter 13. What, what led us to this point in this letter where Paul is talking about love? Doesn't it, does it seem random that he just has this chapter about love in the, in the end of the letter? So first of all, 1 Corinthians 1.11, he said there are contentions among you. As he described Corinth in their state, there are contentions among you. In chapter 3, he says this, For you are still carnal, for whether there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? So what problems did they have? They were fighting, they were envying one another, they had divided the church. Another problem that he identifies before he gets to chapter 13 is that they were filled up with their own ego. He said, God's given you these gifts. We talked about that earlier. These things have been bestowed on you from God. Why are you acting like you weren't given those things, like you built those things, you attained those things? He said, why are you boasting as though God didn't give those things to you? And they were puffed up with ego, and that was causing more problems. Another thing they were doing was approving of sin. They were glorying in something that was so extremely depraved, he said, not even the heathen is doing this, and you're celebrating your tolerance of this behavior. They were wanting to sue each other over civil matters. And, he, and listen to this. He says, it is an utter failure. It's an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren. This is one of the Ten Commandments as it's talked about here. Do not defraud. Do not defraud. What were they doing? They were defrauding each other. They were cheating one another. Huge problems at Corinth. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty one 21, for an eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What's this about? This is about their partaking of the Lord's Supper and how they were very careless toward the needs of their brethren to, to wait on them to ensure that they were able to partake of that feast and get the same spiritual benefit as them. No, they were careless and they just, they, they consumed and consumed for their own consumptions in a carnal way. So they had carelessness also going on there in the church. And then he asks them this question in this chapter. What, do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? Do you see the effect that it had? Now, question. What if this was a description of the church at Plainview? 
We'd be in bad shape, right? What, what kind of description is this? Their church was broken. Broken in so many ways. And you know what they were focused on? They were focused on all the things we've been talking about all day. All the things that they had elevated to being the most important things. And so he says, earnestly desire the best gifts. That's what they're focused on, the best gifts. We want the best gifts, Paul. He said, desire those things. And yet, I show you a more excellent way. What is the word excellent? It is the Greek word hyperbole, which is where we get our word hyperbole. Hyperbole, superseding, way above, excellent way. Something, and, and again, that's why he's using the word hyperbole or hyperbole, because, because this isn't just a better way, this is a far exceeding way. Well, what does the word way mean? It means a mode or a method, a mode or road. What was the more excellent way? 1 Corinthians 13.1, he, he talks again about the gifts, and I promise we're going to tie all this together in a moment. Here's the gifts he mentions. And he says, if I had the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. Though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so I can remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not love, it profits me nothing. Would you say if one person possessed all these qualities, and not only did they possess them, they possessed them in a state of perfection, just like Paul mentions. All tongues, all prophecy, all mystery, all knowledge, all understanding, so much faith they could remove mountains. In fact, they're willing not only to give everything they own, but give their body to be burned. You go, man, that's a strong church. No, that was a broken church. You know why? Because without love, all those things are meaningless. And I'll tell you, this, this impacts me as a teacher to go, it's not just about wisdom, it's not just about knowledge, it's not just about explaining, it's not just about what I understand. It's got to be done from love. Love was the solution to fix every one of their problems. Where they had contentions, what did he say? Love is patient, love is kind, love is not easily provoked. Love is not rude. When we get in a Bible study with somebody and there's fighting and contention, why is that? And the second question is, are we a participant in that or are we trying to bring about peace in those volatile situations? And if we're doing these things, being impatient and unkind, if we're being rude, if we're easily provoked, you say, what does easily provoked mean? It means if somebody disagrees with me that I just automatically fly off the handle. Just fly off the handle. Easily provoked. He says, that's not how love behaves. They, were, they had ego problems. What did he say? Love doesn't do that. Love doesn't parade itself. It's not puffed up. If that's what we're concerned about is, is puffing. You know, when I read the word puffed up, you know what I think about? A peacock. You ever seen a peacock? Male peacock? They're funny little animals, you know. They walk real slow and kind of bob. But when they get excited, you know what they do? They throw that beautiful you know, collection of feathers out like a fan, and then they strut. They strut. I think that's sometimes what we do, brethren. We strut. That's not love. And if that's why we're doing what we're doing, if we're teaching out of ego, I, I tell you, it's not motivated. For, we're not teaching in love. Envy. They had envy problems. A competitive spirit to compare themselves with each other. And gauge where they were at based upon who was the best, who had the best, as though they did not receive those things. Their carelessness and their cheating of one another, what does he say? Love doesn't seek its own. They're proving a sin. We just mentioned this a moment ago. Love rejoices in truth, not in iniquity. Isn't it interesting that every single characteristic that he mentions of love is relating to an actual problem they were having? And what was going to fix it? Well, they just need better teaching. We do need better teaching. But that's not what they needed. They needed to love each other. And they need to love each other in their teaching. And in their interaction, in their service to one another. 
You know, somebody might give their body to be burned, he mentions that, offer their body as a sacrifice and, and not do it for the right intention. It's still meaningless, even though they gave everything to God. And this really impresses upon me that when he says speaking the truth in love, he's not saying speaking the truth with warm, fuzzy feelings. That's not what he's saying. He's saying you need to speak the truth and you need to do it in this way. With these attributes, with these things in place, that you question your motives, that you make sure your motives are correct. And so number one, be humble. Be humble. Proverbs 13, 10, by pride comes nothing but strife. But with the well-advised is wisdom. Not only should we have the humility to take correction, we should have the humility to listen and seek counsel from others. Notice he uses the word well-advised here, well-advised. What's that mean? Someone who takes advice, who has an open ear. I'll tell you one way to run your credibility in a Bible study is to cut people off over and over and over and never listen to them. Number two, be gentle. Now again, these are all relating to 2 Timothy chapter 2. As he talks to Timothy about being an effective teacher, what does he say? The servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all men. It's real easy to be gentle to people I love. What about somebody that is frustrating me? Be gentle to all men. Colossians 4, 5 and 6 is from the New American Standard. He says, conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of every opportunity. I know that's a little bit different translation. It says redeeming the time. But that's the thought that's been given here of redeeming the time. Making the most of the time you've got, the opportunity you have. Your speech must always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how you should respond to each person. I've had two picky kids in my household. Uh, Van was picky when he was little, and I was a young father, and I thought it was my responsibility to whip him if he did not eat his dinner. He learned to eat his dinner. He's 18 years old. He does not eat a lot of the things that I whooped him and made him eat when he was young. That didn't work very well. Kennedy came out. She likes everything. If you put down bacon or salad, she'll eat salad. She's weird. It's just, it's just how she's geared. She likes health food. Olivia? Olivia lives off of chicken nuggets and mashed potatoes and cheese pizza, macaroni and cheese. Four food groups, right? Very picky. Very picky. And we learned something about her. You can't force feed that girl. As much as you may want to see, you, you sit there at the table for a day and you'll fight her. You're going to eat that. You're going to eat that. She will throw up on the table. I just, this is not worth the battle, but... I'm making a point here. I'm not just talking about my kids. I think that's the way we are with people who don't want the truth. We just try to shove it down their throat. No, you're going to eat it because you need it. You're going to eat it. Open your mouth. Open it wide. Oh, I know it doesn't taste good. It needs a little seasoning, right? I like green beans, but unsalted green beans, if you like those, you're strange. They're weird. They don't taste good. I my wife makes them with butter and brown sugar and bacon, so they're, they're probably not healthy, but they're delicious, right? little seasoning goes a long way. What's my point? Be intentional with how you say things to people. Be gentle with people. Season your words before you spread them. And you know what people will do if they're seasoned? They're a lot more likely to eat them, to consume them. How many times have we run opportunities by not seasoning our speech? I'm guilty. I'm guilty. I thought my job was to win the war. That's what I thought my job was. Had a couple of young guys come to the house one night. We had four guys there. We were going to watch a boxing match. This was, I think, in 2005. They came by to study, and I didn't know they were coming by to study. My wife set up to study, and they showed up, and we talked with them for a while. and We studied with them, and, you know, I... I took some of their ideas, and we took the Bible, and we opened the Bible, and we just beat them around. And they left, licking their wounds. And we were so, yes, we got them. I called one of my brothers a few days later, and I said, you know, I've been thinking about that night the other night when we were talking about that. He said, me too. He said, what do you think those guys said? I said, well, then when they walked out, they said, y'all sure know your Bible. He said, I think they probably thought we were just jerks. Well, I saw those guys a few days later in Walmart. 
I turned to go down the aisle over there close to the soup aisle, and they were all the way at the other end. They made eye contact with me. They literally bolted in a public place. Did I win? No, I didn't win. I lost. This can't be about us. That's not done out of love. God didn't call us to be spiritual warmongers. He taught us to teach people, to help them learn the truth. And we have to do that in a spirit of gentleness. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. I'll tell you, when people, when their view is, is challenged, they will become two things. They'll become disagreeable and they'll become defensive. Disagreeable and defensive. And a lot of times that, that adds a lot of heat to the situation. And this is the moment where when you're teaching someone, you have to go, okay, it's getting hot. I need to cool things down. If you get involved and you start arguing, you start countering aggressively, you lost. You may have won the war or won the battle, but you lost the war. Because again, it's, it's not about uh, trying to win some intellectual battle. Be patient. And, and I'll tell you, this is another thing Paul mentioned to Timothy that I, I have struggled with. He who answers the matter before he hears it, it is folly and shame to him. You know, I mentioned earlier about cutting people off and interrupting them. Learn to listen to the people you're, you're studying and teaching. Really learn to listen. And I'm not saying listen because uh, you may be buying into something that's non-biblical. I'm saying learn to listen to give them a chance to, to talk. Because one thing you'll inevitably do is if you're impatient with people and you constantly cut them off, is they close their ears. It, it's, it's not helpful to do that kind of thing. And another thing is drawing a conclusion without hearing the entire matter is foolishness. That's what he says here. Before you ever hear the entire matter, just drawing a conclusion. Oh, well, I'll tell you what that is. And they go, wait, 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 I'm not finished with the story. Uh, you got to hear the rest of it. That's foolish. We, we got to be patient with people. Be patient. Proverbs 15, 28. The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer. But the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. When you think of righteous and wicked, what do you usually think of? The wicked person is the person who's depraved and they're in all kinds of immorality and they're mean and manipulative and they're deceitful. And all. Right? That's what I think of. What does he say here about the wicked person? He describes a person who's just very impulsive and just pours words out of his mouth. And who's the righteous person? Someone who ponders to answer. What's that mean, ponder to answer? It means think before you speak. That's what it literally means. So sometimes maybe, you know, we feel compelled to give an immediate answer. I mean, you know, sometimes when people are sitting there thinking, the other person that's talked to will go, ha, gotcha. Okay, I'm still thinking. <laughs> it's okay. If, if you don't know the answer to something, don't just spew something out there because you feel compelled to say something. Just say, you know, I'm not sure about that. Let me look into that a little bit further. Let, I need to do some more study on that, and I'll get back with you later. And then you can move on to something else. But that's what he says the righteous person does. What do they do? They study to answer. And I would say this. Don't wait for those situations to arise. You're inevitably going to get caught in one of those situations. But going into a study unequipped, not knowing any answers, is a bad idea. Prepare for that. Yeah, and, and I don't have this scripture up here, but I think about Abraham when it says that he armed his trained servants when they had to go get Lot. He armed his trained servants. He didn't train his armed servants. He armed his trained servants. Before they went to battle, they'd already had some training. And, and that's, that's something else to keep in mind is, is, is learn about the arguments. Learn what the arguments are. Learn the biblical answer to those arguments so that when you're going in and you're teaching somebody, you've already pondered the answer. You've studied the answer. You've got the answer. But again, be patient and keep the goal in mind. So what is the goal? We've been talking about that over and over. So I want to go back to this passage for a moment. We've noticed the humility. We've noticed the gentleness. Um, we've noticed the different attributes that Paul compelled Timothy to have in his teaching but what's the purpose? 
And so they might know the truth and listen and come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil. What if we go in there and we win the doctrinal debate? But Satan still has them. You feel good about that? Do you? I'll tell you, the only people that are going to feel good about that are people that are self-centered and narcissistic. That should not make us feel good because, oh, we won. We beat them. No, we didn't. They're still in the clutches of the devil. And that's why I said be gentle, be humble, be patient. Instruct them because they need the truth. So they'll come to their senses. Why? Because they're out of their mind. They need to know who God is and, and think soberly so that they can escape the clutches of the devil. And number two, don't take credit. Do not take credit. Something Jesus said to his apostles has always stuck with me. And, and I pondered this a lot because it was always, it was always hard for me to understand because I'm a very literal thinker. And so, so there's a word that he's going to use here in a moment that I'll, I'll explain to you why, why I was having trouble with this. But, but Jesus says to them, And which of you having a servant plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he is coming from the field, Come at once and sit down to eat. But will he not rather say to him, Prepare something for my supper? And gird yourself and serve me till I've eaten and drunk. And afterward, you will eat and drink. Does he thank that servant because he did those things that were commanded him? I think not. So likewise you, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, say we are unprofitable servants. We've done what was our duty to do. Now I want to tell you why I had trouble with this. I was thinking, well the word profit means there's a gain or a value. And the Bible says that our, our service in the Lord is not in vain. I, I mean, of course, there's, there's value to what we're doing. That's not his point. Again, I'm a literal thinker, but that's not his point. His point is about having the right perspective about serving. Having the right motive for the right reward. And when we, when we do things, we do them for the right reason. We do them out of love, and we do that because we're trying to glorify God. I'll tell you what we're not concerned with. We're not concerned with all of the gratitude that people give us. And especially you young people, I want to I really encourage you to think about something. Satan will do everything that he can to keep you from standing up and courageously telling people about God's word. But I'll tell you, once you do, he'll pat you on the back until you fall on your face. Be very careful. And I, I was told from Jerry McCorkle when we first started traveling around and people would come up. And, of course, I'm a young, excited kid. And everybody's going, man, that was a great sermon. Or, you know, some older lady would come up and say, that was the best sermon I ever heard. And Jerry would get out the truck. He said, don't you listen to that. Don't you listen to that. He said, people are trying to be kind and encouraging, but don't you listen to that. And I thought, what is he talking about? Well, he's trying to tell me <laughs> about this. No, it's not about that. Don't you, don't you drink that toxic Kool-Aid because it'll make your head bigger than your body can handle. No, we just need to say, you know what? I've done what I've been asked to do. So, so I want to leave you today with some thoughts about that. How is it that we can do this and not drink the toxic Kool-Aid? How is it that we can continue to find our purpose and, and focus on that purpose without pride being a factor? And I, and I would say the reason why we should look at it from the standpoint of I'm an unprofitable servant, I've just done what I'm supposed to, is from Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. I've got verse 2 up there for some reason up in the heading, ignore that. It's just Romans 12, 1. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. So, what does the word reasonable mean? Someone says, well, that's reasonable, you know. It's the Greek word logikos, which is where we get our word logical or logic. So what's he saying? He says, if you put these two things side by side, that is your service and God's mercy, a living sacrifice, a complete and total surrender of your life is logical. It's logical. It's not above and beyond. You didn't go greater than expected. 
Could we ever outgive the mercy of God? No. No matter how much service we do for the Lord, it's only logical that we give everything that we got in light of the mercy and sacrifice that God has given us. We're unprofitable servants. We've done what is our duty to do. Why? Because it's logical. We serve out of gratitude because it's logical. We love others because it's logical because that's what God has done. For it is God, it is the God, rather, who commanded light to shine out of darkness. This is a little bit of a longer reading, but we're going to read all of it. Who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. I remember the first time I preached a sermon and somebody came forward. Number one, I was like a deer in headlights. I, I did not expect that to happen, and nobody came up to the front, so I went over there, and this guy, man, he was broken. He was trying to pour his heart out to me, and I just kind of freaked out, and I grabbed him by the shoulder and said, do you want the prayers of the church? And walked up and said, he wants the prayers of the church, and we prayed for him. I was just totally freaked out by that, but you know, I left, and I thought, yeah, I got somebody to come forward. All right, you know, I think that's another toxic Kool-Aid we drink. Is all we preached a sermon and it touched somebody. I want you to read what's highlighted up here. It is the God who shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Listen to verse 7. We have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God, not of us. I'll tell you what, we did nothing, we were a conduit. For the power of God, the glorious message of God. That's what we are, earthen vessel. We're a vessel. We're not the power. He's put that in us. He's privileged us to be able to even be a part of this, of being able to teach. He says, we are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death. Excuse me. For Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our mortal flesh. So then death is working in us, but life in you. Paul is essentially saying this. We know why we're doing what we're doing. We're doing that for you. And even though we are constantly in peril of dying and we're always in danger, it's death to us, but it's life to you. What does that sound like to you? Was Paul doing this for himself? No. Continue reading. Notice what else he says here. This is very strong. Verse 13, and since we have the same spirit of faith according to what is written, I believed and therefore I spoke. We also believe and therefore speak. How can we not say? How can we not say what God has given us? How can we not speak? That's what he's saying. Knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and pro will present us with you. For all things are for your sakes. That grace having spread through the many may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. This is how to have the right attitude. Everything else, humility, patience, gentleness, sacrificing our ego, all those things are wrapped up in the foundational thought of this right here. That I do what I do for you and for the glory of God, not for me. Until we get that right, we're not going to be effective teachers. Because it can't be about us. It wasn't, it wasn't that way for Paul. Every one of the apostles gave their life. They gave their life to Jesus. And most of them gave their life up for Jesus. They were killed because of the message they preached. You think a self-centered person who's all about them, is going to do that? There's no way. But I'll tell you what we'll do. When we get this right in our mind, we will look for opportunities to teach other, and we'll teach them with the right attitude and the right spirit. We'll be effective teachers. 
If we have this in our mindset, we'll get up in the pulpit. And when we preach from the pulpit, it won't be some pontification of our knowledge or some self-centered soliloquy that others can just observe and listen to as we talk about all of the knowledge that we've gained. But I'll tell you, it'll be a valuable teaching from God's Word that will build up the saints, pull them closer together, and draw them nearer to God. But we have to start here and have the right attitude. So I want to stop with this passage right here. Who then is Paul and who is Apollos but ministers? What did Jesus say? This is the same word. Same idea, servant. They're just servants. They're just servants through whom you believed as the Lord gave to each one. I planted Apollos water, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. All right, we're going to open up the floor for questions one more time. Uh, we'll do this one at a time. Any questions about anything today? I don't know if that's good or bad. Good for me. <laughs> okay, I'll turn the floor back over to Craig. Craig.